0: Hi, this is Carlos Castillo and you are listening to Pay off the Mant card.
1: The following podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to Tale of the Manticore, Season 2. Like the creature from which it takes its name, Tale of the Manticore is a mashup, a crossbreeding between two different species of storytelling. Here you will find the unpredictability of old school RPG paper and dice games with the storycraft of a dark fantasy novel. No character is sacred, and no character will be spared if the dice decide their fate is at hand. According to lore, the tale of a manticore is barbed with cruel iron spikes. There will be much pain in the days ahead. Last time on Tale of the Manticore. The last chapter begins with the PCs on their way to Mirpool on a mission to investigate the sawmill Nobre had mentioned in his coded ledger. They discuss the likelihood of Captain Belloc's association with the Weeping Eye and surmise that he is certain to be making more trouble for the church before long. When they arrive at their destination, Yellowfly gives his companions a history lesson that he claims is unfiltered by corrupt authorities and official record keepers. He tells the story of Vincis, the warrior, Danor, the wizard, and Yumia, the spymaster. They had been righteous rebels who overthrew a wicked queen a few hundred years ago. Shortly after this victory, Yellowfly explains, they disappeared, some say into a mysterious ruin under the castle itself. When they were seen again, they had changed. Vincis was especially altered. He had become a monster of a man, and was thereafter remembered as the most brutal tyrant Camertine had ever known. King Vincis was, in turn, killed by Camertine's greatest hero, Aylward, the Silverthorn, a paladin. Although the church of Esaluna claimed him as one of their order, Yellowfly says that he was actually a follower of Sadal. In the second half of the episode, the companions travel to the old sawmill and Cole finds a shaft leading into the earth, hidden inside the foundation. But unbeknownst to the party, their presence in Mirapol has been noted. Romela, the woman who escaped them at the safehouse, has spotted them and knows where they have gone. She does not follow. Instead, she reports the unwelcome church members to her mistress, a powerful magic user, who summons an aberration to hunt and kill them all. Today is a very exciting day for me because this is the day that Cat's Bane reaches level 2. He'll get new hit points a chance for stat increases, and most exciting of all, a new first-level spell. I'm going to save the best for last, so let's start with his new hit points. Magic users only get a D4 for their hit die, and Cat's Bane has no constitution bonus, so it's a straight-up roll. Here goes. A 2. Not great, but the dice will do what the dice will do. His new total is 6. Next up, our chances for stat increases. Let's get right into it. Will his strength increase? Yes, a six. Catsbane's feeble score of six goes up to a seven. I think this might decrease his penalty. I'll just quickly check the rules. Oh, this is a surprise. I had made a mistake earlier when I assigned a minus two penalty for his original score of six. The rules say that it should have been a minus one. And the move from six to seven won't change this. Well, I'm glad to have caught my error at any rate. Next up is intelligence. The roll... A 5. Only a 6 indicates a change, so that's nothing. Next is Wisdom. Another 5. The Dice Gods are teasing me now. Dexterity. A 6. Hot Dog. His 14 goes up to a 15. I'm pretty confident there'll be no change to his bonus, but I've got the rules open right here in front of me, so I'll just make sure. Yeah, okay, no change. Constitution is up next. The roll. <laughs> Another 5. Finally, Charisma has a chance to go up by one. Will it? A two means it will not. Still, that was a very lucky round of stat increases, and makes up for the weak hit points roll. Of course, the best part of leveling up a magic user is determining their new spell. The BX rules lists 12 spells of first level. If I get an eight or nine on the die, I'm going to create a new table of potential spells and roll on that. Here's why. An 8 would be a duplicate of the spell he already knows, read languages, and a 9 indicates read magic, which I make available to all my magic users as a free-to-cast cantrip or always-on ability. What I'm really hoping for is something I haven't yet seen on the show. Here's the roll. A 6. What's that? Oh, this is good. Cat'spain has learned magic missile. I think that during the party's downtime, Catsbane realized he could increase his influence over the extraplanar creature that helps him to cast Read Languages. He spent some time writing and rewriting a kind of contract that he'll speak as part of the incantation to the new spell, and when he has the wording just perfect, he writes it in a spellbook in the language of magic. Okay, we're done with Catsbane for the moment, but since we're on the topic of level ups, I should mention Romola's concurrent increase in power. In Tale of the Manticore, NPCs level up the same way and at the same pace as PCs. Since we met Romola in the episode that we met Catsbane, that means she levels up today as well. When she escaped the party back at the safe house, she was level 3, so as of this episode, she is level 4. But a level 4 what, exactly? Romola is an illusionist. I'm using the class as described in the Old School Essentials Advanced Rules, and it's pretty straightforward. Think of it as a magic user with a different set of spells. In rolling up her stats there's a minor detail we need to be concerned with and it's the minimum class requirement of a 9 in her dexterity score. This will be easy to handle. The first 9 or better I roll on 3d6 will go into dexterity. Other than that, I'm going to go with straight 3d6 rolls and only tamper with them if they really go against the character as already established. Okay, let's get to rolling and see what we get. My first roll, an 8, that goes into strength. Next, 15. Now this would have gone into intelligence and would certainly make sense there, but I absolutely NEED a DEX score of at least 9. So 15 will be her dexterity score. Well, it's straight 3d6 from here on out. Back to intelligence, I've got an 11. That works. Jumping over dexterity to wisdom, a 9, constitution, another 9, and finally charisma, I've got a twelve. Good rolls, and more importantly, they don't require any kind of massaging to make them work. That's what I like to see. Illusionists get a D4 for their hit die, so Romola's hit points will be determined by rolling four D4. Whoa! I just rolled three fours and a three. Romola is about as tough as a spellcaster can be, with 15 hit points. She wears no armor, but has an armor class of 11 because of her dexterity score. She only carries a dagger for a weapon, but she knows how to throw it with impressive accuracy. Romola is overall a very dangerous foe. She knows the spells Auditory Illusion, Glamour, Improved Phantasmal Force, and Blur. Now we've already seen her use three of these spells, two at the safehouse, and one when she was selling prayer beads in front of the Temple of Sadal in Mirpool. Blur is her newest spell, but she only just learned it. You know, even though the party is not directly threatened by her, and is not positioned to run into her in the very near future, I feel that Romola is shaping up to be a major villain in the story. Maybe we ought to learn a little more about this strange woman, who can change her appearance as if she were a doppelganger. Dramatis Personae Romola Romola had met her the same way the others had, A strange young woman had wandered into their field one evening, saying she was lost, and could she be a deer and help her find the road? And by the way, what beautiful hair she had! Romola had gone along like a lamb to the slaughter. The first spell had robbed her of speech, the second had made her muscles stiffen, and the third had dispelled the illusory mask that had hidden the stranger's true identity. In reality, she was a withered and hunchbacked crone with green bulging eyes and wispy hair the color of iron. No one had gone looking for her. There was no rescue attempt whatsoever. Long ago, the men and women of Mirpool had tried and failed to put a stop to the disappearance of their children. It was something that happened once every three or four years. They knew about the crone in the swamp and had formed a group to hunt her down, but she had led them in circles and cursed their lands, causing their precious river to all but dry up, ruining their sawmill. The people of Mirpool had gotten the message. The occasional loss of a child was an unavoidable part of life. During the time of her captivity, Romola quickly learned how to differentiate between the animals that were natural and the ones that had once been children. The latter could be identified by their eyes as they retained the round pupils from their humanity. The witch kept several cats, two pigs, a bat, three rats, and a raven. In addition to the unnatural eyes, these animals were universally aggressive or sullen. For the first few weeks, Romola had nightmares every night about waking up as a frog or a snake or something even worse. But that did not happen. She woke up in her own skin each morning, and the crone would send her on various errands to fetch water or to wash or mend clothing. Then she would talk with her, ask questions about the folk who lived in town. Romola answered as truthfully as she could. She had always had a good memory, and the witch commented on this more than once. Romola made no attempt to escape, as the weird animals were never far away and always seemed to be watching her, and with a kind of growing malice they knew that the crone had selected her for something special. Indeed she had. Nightmother, as she preferred to be called, started to give Romola more than errands and odd jobs. She started to teach her the secrets of the swamp and how to speak with the beings who were not of this world. Nightmother was sometimes visited by these beings. They were masculine entities, and they only came at night. Sometimes she called them. Other times they came unbidden and demanded her attention. Romola did not have her first visit until she was several years into study. She had only just had her first blooding, and Nightmother said it was the sign of readiness. That first visit had been terrifying and exhilarating. She had wanted more, and over the years had gotten it. Each coupling with the dark, sinewy, and faceless forms that smelled of blood and ash had given her more power. After a time, Nightmother's strange menagerie of animals stopped looking at her with hatred. Now they regarded her with deference. Romola felt happy, she did not miss home and had no desire to escape at all. She did have the idea to revisit the towns of men, however, and she shared this idea with her night mother. So night mother taught her a simple glamour, and this was Romola's first spell. It allowed her to change how people saw her face. With practice, she could look like a girl or a boy, or even someone she knew, or someone much older. After a time, she even learned how to slightly alter how people perceived the shape of her body. Although she would learn other spells later on, this first spell always remained her favorite, and Romola often wore someone else's face, even when there was no one else around. Father Darman was the identity she currently favored, but it was not the only guys she wore. Depending on the day and the town she was in, sometimes just depending on her mood, she wore one of a dozen faces, of both men and women, always about her age, always about her size. Maintaining the glamour for a full day was effortless by now, and there was something so liberating about looking out at the world from behind a mask. Meat Bowler.
2: Hello, everybody. I'm the Bowler.
1: Hicks. Me? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I hunt anything. Only things I
0: don't hunt are like rocks and trees, you know. And Simon.
2: Well, welcome to Simon
0: Sundries. I am Simon. As they try to navigate the underbelly of the haunted industrial fantasy city that they live in. Welcome to System Switch, an improvised podcast about a group of unlikely heroes helping fight evil throughout the multiverse. Every short season, we will be exploring a new universe in the form of a new tabletop role-playing game, and we're starting off with a bang, with Blades in the Dark by John Harper. Listen as our heroes fight ghosts. Attend hybrid animal cage fights. Meet colorful characters. Aldo Aran at your service. I am Mr. Ashkani. Yeah, 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 f*** you, Hicks. And invent strange arcane artifacts. I
2: call it the shock jock. Sense a shock right up through your grundle.
0: With immersive sound effects, ambience, and a full soundtrack, System Switch has a fully produced soundscape and a cast of world-class improvisers. So join us in our romp through the multiverse and listen to System Switch now on your favorite podcasting app. Thank the Light, a podcast about the Wheel of Time show on Amazon. We also talk about the books. I'm Justin, and I've been a fan of the Wheel of Time books since the 90s. I'm Desmond, and I just jumped on board with the show. Together we make a great combination of the longtime fan. And the freshly initiated. Quickly tell them what makes The Wheel of Time so great. Fifteen books, quickly, okay. Uh, there's monsters with no eyes, there's straws that are gross and stinky, there's magic involved. I love these books so much, they were such a part of my childhood, they really shaped who I was as a person, so I don't know what else to say, magic pirates. The Wheel of Time podcast is found wherever you listen to great podcasts.
1: Chapter 13. Part 1. Day 50. Late Morning Party Status Yellowfly 15 of 15 hit points Tamlin 7 of 7 Cole 12 of 12 Shawnee 8 of 8 Catsbane 6 of 6 Spells Available Tamlin Has Prayed For Cure Light Wounds Catsbane Has Memorized Read Languages, and Magic Missile. Tamlin's torch fell 15 feet straight down before landing on a flagstone floor. The brand sputtered, but it did not go out. When it was clear that the light had not alerted anything below, they lowered themselves into the shaft. Yellowfly went first, followed by Cole, then Tamlin, Catsbane, and Shawnee last, holding the second torch and navigating the ladder rungs one-handed. At the bottom was some kind of storage room. It was a space of roughly 30 by 30 feet with a single iron bound door in the middle of the wall to their right. Open and empty crates were stacked against the wall to the left. Two four foot tall barrels with a pair of wooden planks laid across their rims formed a makeshift table. On it were an empty wine bottle and a pair of leather cups. Yellowfly crossed the room and picked up one of the cups, sniffing it. He next picked up the wine bottle When he tilted it, he noticed that there was still a little bit of liquid at the bottom. Shawnee was over by the crates now, holding her torch a careful distance from the wood. She ran a hand over the rough surface of one of the crates and looked at her fingers. No dust, she whispered. Someone has been here recently, agreed Yellowfly. All eyes went to the single, thick, wooden door, but it remained solemn and still. Shawnee crossed the floor again, handing the torch back to Tamlin as she went. She pushed her jaw-length blonde hair away from her ear as she pressed it against the wood of the door. Her eyes closed in concentration. Nothing. Apart from their torches, she couldn't hear anything at all. Yillafly looked at Cole and pointed at the door with his chin, drawing his longsword. Cole readied his hatchet in his right hand and gripped the door's handle in his left. Shawnee got out of the way, drawing the short sword she had taken from Ratleg in the basement of the Fall Fallow Inn. Cole's eyes flicked from one companion to the next, letting them know to be ready. Then he pulled the door open. Immediately, the storage room filled with the unmistakable smell of rotting meat. Cole pulled back instinctively, making a face of disgust, before squinting beyond the threshold. Past the door was a straight hallway. It ran forty feet in a straight line before terminating at another door, identical to this one. The left wall was interrupted by yet another door, but it was slightly ajar. It opened away from them, into the space beyond. Shanae looked at Yellowfly and made a gesture with her free hand, a bald fist with the first and second fingers stiffly pointing down. Her eyebrows raised in question, and after a moment's consideration, Yellowfly nodded. Shawnee has just used Thieves' Cant to ask Yellowfly if she should scout ahead while attempting to move silently. Her chance of success, as we already know all too well, is slim, only 25% having improved modestly when she reached level 2. Here's the roll. 41. That's a failure, though Chonet does not know that. Cole stepped to the side to allow the rogue to pass. She slipped into the hall and padded carefully to the open door. When she got close, she slowed her movements and crept with a deliberation and speed that Cole found almost painful to watch. He gripped his hand axe more tightly in anticipation, and found that his hand was sweaty. Up ahead, Shawnee reached out for the door. She could see now that it was fitted with a lock, whereas the others were not. Of course, that didn't matter. It was already partway open. She put her fingertips against its rough wooden surface, and pushed. There is a dangerous creature inside this room, but whether it's waiting in ambush, or whether it's caught by surprise, is up to the dice. If Shauna had been successful with her Move Silently roll, I would have doubled her chance to surprise and halved her chance to be surprised. But because she failed her roll, this check will be rolled normally, without any advantage for either side. The BX rules say that characters and foes will be surprised on a roll of 1 or 2 on a d6. Let's roll for Shauna first. A 3 on the die. She is not surprised. And one more roll, this time for the creature. Here we go. Oh! a one on the die, it is surprised. This will give Shawnee a free round to act. Once she sees what's in here, she could attempt to backstab, but I think I have a better idea. Let's get back to the narrative, and you'll see what I mean. She wasn't exactly sure what she was even looking at after the door had swung open. The room was just a cell, a ten foot by ten foot cube featureless save for a pair of iron rings fixed to the back wall that supported a manacled corpse. It hung from the wall like a capital letter Y with its arms splayed out against the stone. But this was not all. The flickering light from her torch glinted off something curved, darkly purple, and shiny that was attached to the corpse. An instant after the light fell across it, it moved, undulating, rippling, wave-like, across the corpse's torso. Then Shawnee saw the dozens of short spindly yellow legs, and she understood there was some kind of creature clinging to the corpse. The gaunt face of the prisoner had been partially eaten, and holes were visible here and there across the flesh of its naked body, where this thing had been feeding. Shawnee's lips pulled back in horror when the thing partially detached itself from the corpse and curled back so that it was half suspended in the air and showed its terrible face. It made her think of a centipede and a crayfish all at once mixed together. The insect-like head had two multifaceted, almond-shaped eyes and eight whip-like appendages spilling from where the mouth should have been. They writhed in constant motion like worms, as if they sensed her presence, independent of the creature. This time, Shawnee's propensity for acting on instinct saved her life. Anyone else perhaps might have hesitated, but not Shanae. She snatched at the door handle and yanked it toward her, slamming the door shut, just as the carrion crawler shot forward to attack.
2: The creature you're describing is known as the carrion crawler. In Zacia, it is called a carcass crawler. They are extremely dangerous. They normally only feed on the dead, but have been known to attack the living, too. Those tentacles you described can paralyze the carrion crawlers' prey, and victims are sometimes eaten alive.
1: Catsbane twisted the tip of his short beard between thumb and forefinger as he tried to recall everything he had ever read about the creature.
2: I believe they can grow even bigger than the one you saw, up to eight feet long. They typically make their home in caves or other underground places like this.
1: Shawnee shuddered. Do you think there might be others down here? They were back in the room with the crates and makeshift
2: table. They are solitary beings by nature, but they can coexist with others of their species. The dwarves of the Kazmirioth, those that remain, are said to breed them as a source of food.
1: Shanae looked like she might be ill.
2: Well, at any rate, uh, your quick thinking might have saved us all, Shanae. Uh, Under no circumstances should we open that door.
1: Tamlin was only half listening. Since she had described the contents of the cell, he had been unable to stop thinking of the poor soul chained to the wall. The notion of what that person must have suffered was almost too much to bear. Tamlin's heart ached, and he was overcome with a feeling of deep pity. They must have spent days on end in total darkness. They must have died alone, chained to a wall, and utterly deprived of hope. The weeping eye are true monsters, he said to no one in particular. He had no idea how right he was. Tamlin did know that Shartoon had suffered a similar fate to the man in the cell, having spent 11 years in the king's dungeon. Father Ludin had once told him the parable of imprisonment, and he had never forgotten the lesson.
3: At first there was only the shock of deprivation and the physical pain that accompanied to thirst hunger, exhaustion, and abuse from the prison guards. Chartoon was kept at the brink of death by his wardens, who occasionally dragged his stooped and emaciated body from its cell to administer a beating or some other humiliation. Their creativity in these endeavors was impressive in its range and in inhumanity. In his second year, Chartoon tried to maintain his sanity by imagining he was somewhere else, sitting on a yellow field of grass beside a gurgling brook walking through a birdsong-filled woods, or snug and warm in the house where he grew up, his mother and father close at hand, and smiling down at him with love in their eyes. In the third year of his captivity, Chartoun abandoned these reveries and succumbed to anger. He cursed his guards and feebly fought back when they pulled him from his cell to make sport. He spat in their faces and beat his fists against the walls of his cell, An entire year was lost to blind wrath and the desire for revenge. In the fourth year, the middle year of his sentence, he ceased his yelling and ranting and turned to pleading. He tried to bargain with the guards. He offered to inform on his friends. He made indecent offers that would have shamed his former self. The guards laughed at him, mocked his efforts, and ultimately left him to endure his misery alone. In the fifth year, Chartoon wished only for his own death, but even this was denied to him. Then, in the sixth year, something inside him changed. He saw that his sentence was nearly over and felt the alien sensation of hope for the first time since his incarceration. Hope turned to acceptance and then to revelation. Something had unlocked in his heart, and his soul flooded with wisdom, understanding, and peace. By the time the seventh and final year arrived, Chartoon no longer wanted to leave the Emperor's dungeon. They had to drag him from his cell and throw him into the street, a free man against his will. Now, Tamlin, Chartoon learned a very precious lesson while in prison. I'd like you to think over this story, and the next time we meet, you tell me what you think it was.
1: Thanks for listening to Tale of the Manticore. If you like what you've heard and would like to lend your support, there are lots of ways to help. You can recommend the show online or to friends. You can like and retweet episode announcements on Twitter. You can purchase One Shot in the Dark or the Pendulum World Building Tool, each priced at under 2 bucks, Or you can pick up a free copy of Encyclopedia Manticorica. These can all be found on DriveThruRPG. Finally, you can rate or review the show on your podcatcher of choice. All of these things make a real difference to the success of the show. I'd like to share one of your generous reviews right now. This one is on Apple Podcasts and was posted by Andisius. Andisius writes, If you like the emergent potential of tabletop role-playing games, this is a great show for you. It's a solo play, so there's no banter or goofing off between players. Just a solid, dice-driven, dark fantasy story. The sound design is particularly standout. It's well-crafted and additive to the overall presentation. Have fun with this one. Thanks a million, Andisius. I make an effort to ensure that everything in the show matters and that there's never any filler very happy to hear that that's coming across your having taken the time to post this review is super appreciated now where would I be without my amazing cast of voice actors the always excellent Kyellen is back in this episode playing cat's bane I've been relying heavily on Kyellen for this role and I just wanted to say thanks my friend your contributions make all the difference Kyellen has a lot of music available for those that haven't heard yet you can download it for free at soundcloud.com slash. Kyellen CC. Kyellen is spelled K Y E L L A N. If anyone listening wants to get in touch with me, I'm on the usual socials at Manticore Tale on Twitter or Tale of the Manticore Podcast on Instagram. My email is taleofthemanticore at gmail.com. I also keep a blog where I post, well, all kinds of show and RPG related stuff from maps to musings to crafts to show notes. The Adventure will continue on the next episode of Tale of the Manticore the story where chaos rolls.
0: Hey Jim, have you heard that new podcast where those two silly guys talk about D&D? Is that the one where a wizard who is a professional train builder and another wizard who's a caretaker of the legendary Fungent, and they talk about all things fantasy in D&D? Yeah, yeah, that's it. I have, Sean. I think it's us. Oh, right. Okay, yeah. I thought it sounded familiar. Greetings, adventurers! We invite you to listen to our podcast, 13 Sided Die. Our goal is to entertain you with our fun and in-depth discussions about D&D, fantasy and everything in between. Come sit by the fire, you're safe here, we'll keep watch. We hope you enjoy 13 Sided Die, available
3: wherever you listen to your podcasts.